sure we're rolling here. By the way, our sermon audio site, which is what we use this for every week, we are between just a little over 17,000 times that somebody has gone there and listened to one of our lessons. And um, they've been downloaded now almost 8,000 times. So this ministry continues to blossom and explode as we use it. So uh, the little bit of time we take every Sunday morning to kind of hook these things up, more of a pain for me than you, um, is worth it because we're, we're able to help and reach other people. All right, we are going through our series entitled When Life Seems Unlivable. And if you haven't been in a place like that yet, one day you will be. And uh, unfortunately, we all have to go through times when, in our flesh anyway, life gets so difficult that we even get to the place where we entertain these thoughts that, you know, I just don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can keep going like this. Now, let me say this, because I don't want people to misunderstand. I don't think that everybody in their life at some point thinks about committing suicide. I think more people think about it than will tell you. But I don't think everybody does that. However, there are still times when life gets really, really, really hard. And we, we, we begin to question ourselves. We question our decisions. We begin to question our future, all kinds of things. So it's always been comforting for me to know that in the Bible there are people who face everything you and I will ever face in our life and made it. And Jesus, of course, being the ultimate example of that, because the Bible says he was tempted in every way we could possibly be tempted, yet without sin. So he becomes our ultimate example. Today we're going to look at Moses. And Moses is uh, the example that I used to find out what to do when life seems unlivable because I feel all alone or loneliness. Look at Numbers chapter 11. We're going to start in verse number 4. Actually, look at verse number 1. Let me just read the first part of verse number 1, and then we'll go to verse number 4. The Bible says, Now the people complained about their hardships. Poor Moses, he had to deal with that all the time. The people complained about their hardships. You know, one of the things that I noticed was interesting about the children of Israel, and this is just humanity in general, whenever they were in Egypt as slaves, did they ever complain about their hardships? Sure they did. All the time. When you come to Numbers chapter 11, are they still in Egypt? No. They're out of Egypt. Here's my point. Whenever life gets difficult, running from the problems and changing the circumstances is not going to change the issues. The Goliaths of our lives will always follow us until, like David, we confront them and slay them. They always will. So, in the children of Israel, we have this great example of exactly what that whole idea is all about. So, in verse number 4, the Bible says, The rabble with them began to crave other food. Now, just a brief synopsis of where they are. They're out of Egypt. They're, they've been in the wilderness for a while. And uh, you're going to see, in a minute, we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 18, and you're going to see the same scenario in Moses' life had already come up once before. Uh, and he evidently didn't learn it real good, so he's kind of fallen right back into the same 
mindset, and we'll see that in a minute. But they, they've been out. They didn't have anything to eat, and God provided something for them to eat, you know, the manna. And uh, now they're tired of it. Common scenario with all of us. You know, we get to a place where we're needy and we, we just want our needs to be met. God takes care of us. And then after a while, we get used to it. Rather than becoming content with our needs being met, we become discontent. And so this is also a very common problem. Every human being battles with it. Um, not every human being, I think, gives into it sometimes to the level some of us do. But nonetheless, it's always an issue that has to be confronted. So this is what happened. They're, they're griping about the food. And again, verse 4, And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. In other words, here's what they said. When we were in prison, we got three squares a day. Now, we had to live in... Implorable conditions. We were locked up in a little 4 by 12 cell most of the time. We had no freedom, but we had better food. So we would rather go back to prison so we could have better food. That's the logic here. Makes no sense. But when we get to the place where we allow our flesh to begin to control our attitudes, we oftentimes make irrational decisions. That don't make sense because we're following our flesh. Of course, God's warned us over and over not to do that. Look at verse 7. The manna was like coriander seed. And then he goes on to describe that. Skip down with me to verse 10. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. I tried to imagine what that might look or sound like. I, I can't. I mean, we're, we're talking about a million strong people here, not, not, not 40 or 50. A lot. Of, I mean, a whole community of people, everybody complaining at the entrance to their tent. I don't know if this means literally everybody was just standing there whining and crying, or if every home you entered, there was complaining. I think it was probably a little of both. But nonetheless, here's, here was the response. The Lord, verse 10, became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. Well, I can tell you this. If everybody's complaining and God's angry, that's enough to make any leader of God troubled. And that's exactly what happened here. Then, in verse 11, he, Moses, asked the Lord, here it is, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? Blaming God for this. What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Let me stop here for a second. The common initial thought process when difficulty hits our life is God's causing it. I've done something wrong. I'm being punished. You'll see as we go through some of these others, especially when we get to Job. And we may spend two weeks on Job. You're going to find that that is a normal common initial response to difficulty in life, especially among believers. That we think that all difficulty in life is because I did something wrong and God is punishing me. The truth of the matter is, difficulty is always used by God for His purpose to bring Him glory and for our good. 
regardless of the reason it was initiated. But you and I know Job did nothing wrong. Yet what was the common response of his three buddies? This is happening to you because you've sinned. You've done something wrong and you're being punished. And that's why Job was so perplexed. He even said over and over again, God, if I've done something wrong, show me what I've done because I don't know what it is. And I'm baffled here. I, I don't. If the assumption is difficulty only happens because I've done something wrong, then God, what, what did I do? I need to fix this because life's getting kind of tough right now. Okay? So that's Moses' assumption. God, why did you do this to me? What have I done to displease you that you caused me to have to go through this? Okay, let's keep going. Verse 12. Did I conceive all these people? They weren't originally my responsibility. Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? By the way, interesting. God never told him to carry them like a nurse carries an infant. He said, lead them. It's interesting how we kind of distort what God tells us to do when it fits our moment. And we all do it. Verse 13. Where can I get meat for all these people? Here's the issue. All that other stuff was fluff to make him feel better and take the blame off of Moses. Like, you know, this is not my fault. You're the one that told me to do this. By the way, in Exodus chapters 2 and 3, we find the calling of Moses at the burning bush, remember? And God said, I'm, I'm here meeting with you because I'm asking you, I have planned for you to go lead my people out of Egypt. So God is the one that called him. He's the one that asked him to do it. Okay? So he goes on to say in verse 13, the real issue is they're all complaining and I have no idea how to shut them up. <clears throat> That's pretty much the essence of what he's saying here. Where am I going to get meat to feed them? Why do you want to do that? Because that'll shut them up. I can't take the complaining no more. They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. Here it is in verse 15. Moses thinks life is unlivable because he's in this all by himself. Verse 15. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. God, if you're going to make me go through this, life is unlivable. Just take my life. I can't take it no more. I just can't do it anymore. You and I probably would be shocked at the number of people that we are around every day of our life who are lonely and we have no idea. Interesting fact, loneliness does not mean physical aloneness. Moses was not physically alone. On the contrary, he was surrounded by millions of screaming Jews. Moses was not in a place where he was minute in importance and felt like he was lost in the crowd and nobody thought he was valuable. Moses was the leader of the nation. Yet, he experienced a form of loneliness that quite often we experience, and sometimes we don't even realize that's really what it is. So what I want to do today is I want us to go through um, three things. And we'll, we'll do it real quick. If you take notes, I'm going to give you some things to write down that I think will be helpful. But we're going to talk, first of all, about the causes of loneliness. In the life of Moses, in this particular situation, and we'll talk about some of that. Then we're going to talk about a cure for loneliness. 
which is one basic principle. And then we're going to expand that principle a little bit. And I'm going to give you three ways to apply that principle to our life. Okay? First of all, the cause of loneliness. What causes loneliness in a person's life? Let me give you these real quick. Number one, there can be spiritual loneliness. This is when we are disconnected from God. We have no relationship with God. We feel like we've got to handle life all by ourselves with no supernatural help or support. If you ever go through a, an addiction program, um, secular or whatever, one of the first things they're going to teach you is that you have to create hope somehow. And the way you do that is you have to believe in a power that is bigger than you are. Now, unfortunately, a lot of these programs do not recognize that power as the creator of the universe, God, but they do recognize that without the hope that there's something bigger that can help you, you'll never make it. Because the reason is, if you think you're it, you already know you can't do it. That eliminates hope. And when hope is gone, that's when life becomes unlivable. That's why Jesus Christ ultimately is our hope. The coming of Christ is our ultimate hope. So, whenever you start to feel lonely, it's very possible that, that it could be you. And, and by the way, you could be a believer and experience spiritual loneliness. Yeah, I believe, I'm saved, I've got Jesus in my heart. But my personal relationship with God is cold and dead and dry. I mean, we haven't interacted together in a long time, and I've kind of drifted away from walking with God in my life. Sometimes we experience spiritual loneliness when we, like Job, are crying out for help, and it seems like God just is not there. He doesn't answer. He does hear us, and He will answer in His time. So there are lots of ways to experience spiritual loneliness. Number two, there can be social loneliness. Now, what is this? This, for example, is the loner attitude often created by low self-esteem. A lot of times this is created in the life of an individual when they grow up through their childhood being constantly told, for lack of a better term, that you're no good, you're terrible, you're worthless, can't believe you're around, wish I'd never had you as a kid, and they're beat down all the time. They become socially inapt to deal with other people in life, and so they become lonely. It literally is kind of their own choice, but that choice was created by a lot of things they went through in life. And ultimately, that's where Jesus Christ, when He comes into a person's life, He gives them hope and He causes them to see that they are valuable. That every human being is valuable. And God's opinion of you is much more important than any other human being's opinion of you. And so when we meet people like that, that's why it becomes so important that we introduce them to the Jesus that we know. Because he makes life livable. Number three, there's also self-inflicted loneliness. Um, this is that, that loneliness that we create in ourselves because we're afraid. A lot of times we're afraid of being hurt if we've been hurt in the past. And so we build a wall. And basically what happens is we are building a wall so we don't let people in. The problem is we're not really, and we've talked about this before, we're not really walling people out. We're walling ourselves on the inside. Because everybody else will naturally be on the outside of your wall. The problem is the only, only person on the inside is you. And we create our own prison of loneliness. 
because we refuse to try and learn to deal with other human beings. Question. Are other human beings sometimes difficult to live with? <laughs> of course they are. I mean, are, are you ever difficult to live with? Your parents ever tell <laughs> For those of you that heard that, that was math. That's right. Uh, now your name will go all over the world. So I, think, I think the truth is, and I, I can remember growing up, and my mom and dad, or, you know, there's all these phrases your mom and dad always says, you know, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. That's a famous one, you know. Um, and my mom would say sometimes, you are just impossible to live with. She would tell my dad that every now and then too. But anyway, um, you're just impossible to live with. So I think we all sometimes may possibly get close to being like that. The truth is we're human. Now, we're just human. We're naturally selfish. That, that, that's why it's so hard to live life the way God wants us to, because the way God says to live life is the opposite of that. For God so loved us, he gave. Well, we're not naturally like that. So it makes it tough. So there are going to be people that are difficult to deal with. So in our lives, for our own sake, we have to learn how to live with difficult people. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, is a classic primer on how to deal with people. And by the way, in that passage, God tells us that there are some people we can do everything within our power to live peaceably with, but they will just not allow that to happen. And in those cases, we just separate from them. But everybody is not like that. So whenever we find somebody difficult to deal with, don't immediately throw the wall up and say, I'm not going to try. Try. If we don't at least try to do what God says, then we begin to create self-inflicted loneliness. And then number four, the last cause is situational loneliness. This may be the most unpretentious form of loneliness because it's not bad. But it's just normal. For example, when you graduated from high school, if you chose to go away from home to college, there was at least at some point, probably, I hope, a little missing of home and a little bit of that loneliness. I mean, you know, you're used to waking up on Saturday morning in your own bed, in your own house, with mom and dad. I don't know if they had the bacon and eggs going or not. In our house they did. We lived on a farm. We always had that. You know, you go off to college, you wake up in a dorm room to the smell of nothing but your roommate's stinky socks. You know, I mean, there ain't no bacon and eggs cooking. And in order to get to the bacon and eggs, i got to get up and walk across campus to the dining hall. And then when I get there, the bacon and eggs don't smell or taste anything like mom and dad's. And all of a sudden, man, I wish I was home again. Or you get married. I know everybody thinks... Marriage is the answer to all the joys of life. And it is for about 48 hours. <laughs> and then you realize, you know, that, that ceremony we had two days ago didn't eliminate life. And the truth was it didn't change anything. All of my same problems I still got. But now I got his or hers to go with them. So there's this... I need to run home to mom and daddy. I need help, mom, because my wife don't know how to do it. Or my husband don't know how to do it. Mom, dad, I need help. And you know, if mom and dad are smart, you know what they're going to tell you? I love you. Here's what I taught you growing up. It's your turn now. 
If they let you come back home, you're going to have bigger problems than the ones you're talking to them about. Stay there, but that's just part of life. But it does create some sense of loneliness for a period of time. Uh, Death is a very common cause of situational loneliness. Um, Whenever you lose a parent, both of my parents are gone. I'll never forget. the day My dad died, and then two years later, my mom died. I'll never forget the day. When I walked into my mom's bedroom, she'd been sick with cancer. She died at home like my dad. When I walked into the bedroom, because my brother had called us and said, Mom's gone. We were expecting it at any moment. I walked into that room, and my mom's lifeless body was laying in that bed that I had seen her lay in for years and years and years, ever since I was four years old. That had been my parents' bedroom. That's where they were. And I'll never forget walking into that room and realizing that my mom and my dad are gone. I'm all alone. I don't have a dad to call. I don't have a mom to call. Somebody's got to take care of all these affairs. Well, we got this big old house, but, but there's no mom and dad to take care of it. And this feeling of loneliness because the situation in my life had changed was almost overwhelming at the time. So there are all kinds of causes for loneliness. However, in Moses' case, this was a form of loneliness that quite often is self-inflicted, and it's quite often done with good intentions. Moses thought he had to live life and fulfill his responsibilities by himself. Now, we don't have time to look at it, but back in Exodus chapter 18, you find this same scenario playing out. Remember when Moses was sitting, um, evidently his father-in-law Jethro was visiting, because the Bible says at the end of this discourse in Exodus 18 that he sent his father-in-law on his way. So he, he left. So evidently he was visiting, but he came and, and wanted to see his son-in-law, and Moses is sitting evidently in a chamber on a, 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 a throne or a stool or at a desk or something, and all the people are coming to him asking him, what, what, is, what does God want us to do about this? I have this decision to make. What should I do here? And he sat there all day long till late into the night answering these people's questions. Jethro, his father-in-law, came to him and he said, Moses, first of all, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm helping the people. I'm doing what God told me to do. They all come to me and they ask me questions and they want me to tell them what God's will is, what God wants them to do. Now, of course, Moses was the messenger of God. And he said, Jethro said, you mean you sit here and do this all day long? All by yourself? Why do you do this all by yourself? And you know what he told me? He said, Moses, I'm older, been around longer. That's implied, by the way, in the Hebrew. But I'm telling you, what you're doing, it's not good. It's not good. You're not going to be able to sustain this. It's eventually going to catch up with you. So you know what he said? He said, here's what you need to do. Why don't you find some qualified people, teach them, and then give them the responsibility to help you with the smaller things, and then you just take care of the big things. Moses said, you know, that sounds really, really good. By the way, if you're ever in business or in management, Exodus chapter 18 is a classic training tool for how to delegate. It has all the tools in there. 
First of all, you've got to have qualified people. Second of all, you've got to teach them. And then third, you've got to give them enough authority to do what it is you want them to do. That's what Jethro told his, father, or told his son-in-law to do. Moses did it, and everything went great. When you come to number chapter 11, this is after that. Moses is right back where he was before, trying to do it all by himself. Now, here's the point. God never intended for you and I to live life alone. God never intended for us to have to face the situations we face or the difficulties that we face and do it all by ourselves. If there's anybody in this room that has struggles with delegating, it's me. I am the kind of person that thinks it's easier for me to just do it myself than to try and struggle through finding somebody qualified, teaching them how to do it, helping them through the process while they make all these mistakes, because after all, I'm responsible. I'm just the kind of person that would much rather just do it myself. The problem is, like Jethro told Moses, that's not good. Because ultimately what begins to happen is in your personal life, you begin to adopt that same philosophy. Rather than finding friends and family members that I can trust and believe in and go to them for help, it's easier for me to just try and handle it all by myself. That was Moses' issue. And so God, of course, created a solution. We don't have to read, have time to read it, but if you go through Numbers chapter 11, God said, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to bring some people to you. I'm going to put the same spirit in them I put in you. They're going to help you. And in this way, you will not have to bear all these burdens by yourself. You will not have to do life by yourself. And God tells each of us the very same thing. We do not have to live life by ourselves. So, number two, what is the cure for loneliness? It's very simple. Two words. Get connected. Get connected. God never intended for you and me to do life alone. That's why he said in the book of Genesis, whenever he created Adam, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, he said it's not good for man to be alone. So I will make a suitable helper for him. And that's where he came from. Eve was necessary for Adam to make it through life. Because God did not intend for us to be loners. To handle life by ourselves. God doesn't want us, first of all, to have to face life with our own problems. Nor does God want us to take all the skills and talents and abilities and great things He's put inside of us and be selfish and keep them to ourselves. He wants us to share these things with other people so we help them as well. So, the answer to loneliness is getting connected, not building a wall. So, let me read you this quote. I read a book by a John Ortberg entitled, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. <laughs> and in his book, he, I, he had a quote, and I wrote it down. He says this, I have never known anyone who was isolated, lonely, unconnected, had no deep relationships yet had a meaningful and joy-filled life. I've never met anybody like that except. So we can't live isolated, lonely, unconnected, protecting ourselves from any kind of a deep personal relationship with another human being and live a fulfilled, joyful life. It's impossible. Why? Because God didn't make us to live that way. So here's the deal. 
If the cure for loneliness is to get connected, then what am I supposed to get connected to? Let me give you three things we're going to be done, all right? And I wish we had time to go through all this. Um, in the series that I wrote in my blog, we actually spent four or five days on all of these things. I don't have time to do that today. But let me give you the basic three things that we all need to be connected to. Number one, we need to be connected to God personally. He is the source of everything. If we're not connected to God personally, I'm not talking about being a church member. I'm not talking about being a part of a Bible study group. I'm talking about you and me as individuals being connected to God personally. Two ways. Number one, in salvation. And by the way, that's something God wants for everybody. Second Peter 3, 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants everybody to know him personally through salvation. In the person of Jesus Christ, we get our sins forgiven, we get a home in heaven, and we're given hope, life, and a second chance. And that's what makes a personal relationship with God possible. Second of all, he wants us to be connected to him personally through daily communication. God doesn't want us to be the cousin that you see once every five years. God wants to be my best friend. God wants me to come to him. God wants to be that person that I talk to every day, all day long, hundreds of times a day in a personal way. God wants to be the first person I talk to in the morning. He wants to be the last person I talk to at night. He wants to be the most important person that I talk to all day long in my life. God wants me to be that because in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, he taught us to abide in him. Literally, the Greek word there is the Greek word meno. It means to remain in a given state or relationship. And then in verse 5 of John 15, he tells me why. Because without me, he said, Bill, you can do nothing. So first of all, I've got to get connected to God personally. If God is out of a person's life, if they're unconnected from God, loneliness is inevitable. And it will destroy their life. Number two, get connected to God's people. Now, let me remind you, God's people are not perfect. And if they were, the moment I connected to them, they would cease to be perfect. Because we're all human. So don't go looking for a, quote, perfect Christian to get connected to, thinking that they're never going to do anything wrong or they're always going to be the perfect example. Our perfect example is the only person who ever gave a perfect example, and that's Jesus. Everybody else is down on the ground trying to follow him. We're not following each other. Paul even said, for those of you that follow me, I want you to follow me, but I'm following Christ. So if you follow me, that's where we're going. Okay? So I've got to be connected to God's people. In Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, we talked about it. This is where the church formed, and they connected. You know, it's interesting that the Bible says that they ate meat together, they had glad hearts, they rejoiced, and God kept sending more and more people to them. So they didn't get saved new life by themselves. They connected to God's people. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, the Bible talks about us being a part of a body. And that body has lots of members. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Bible says that every single part of the body is important, and we can never say that there's a part of that body that is not needed. So we need each other because we are the parts of that body. And God teaches that we need each other. Then, finally... Um, not only do we get connected to God personally, to God's people, but finally, to God's plan. God's plan for my life. God has a purpose and a plan for my life. 
That's why in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says to prevent my body's living sacrifice, to no longer be conformed to the world, to be transformed by the renewing of my mind so that I can understand the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. I will never know true joy and happiness as long as I'm living life trying to do my own thing. It's only inside of God's will and God's purpose for my life that I can truly know real joy. Now, God's purpose and God's plan for my life involves four things. Let me just give you these and we'll stop. Number one, I've got to be committed to that plan. Romans 12, 1 says, I've got to present my body as a living sacrifice. God, you can do with me whatever you want to. If there's any lack of commitment to doing what God wants me to do, I'm never going to know it. Number two, I've got to be guided by God's Word. God's never going to tell me to do anything that contradicts the Bible. So that's why it's important. I learn the principles of the Bible and live my life to the best of my ability with God's help every day by these principles. Number three, I've got to be confident of my gifts. God teaches He's given all of us gifts. We have natural talents and abilities, and we have spiritual gifts. He's given us experiences. He's given us personalities. All of these things God has used to mold us into who we are. You need to know who you are in Christ. You need to know what your gifts are, what your talents and abilities are. If you don't know those, then how can you know what it is God wants you to do? Well, I think God wants me to be a brain surgeon. Oh, really? Do you like science? Heck no. I hate science. Do you like working with your hands tediously? Are you kidding? I'm as clumsy as an ox. So why do you think God wants you to be a brain surgeon? Because I make lots of money. That's no way to figure out what God wants you to be. What what is God? What are your gifts? So be confident in your gifts. Know how God has made you. And then finally, be faithful to God daily. You just got to live life one day at a time. You know, oftentimes when I talk to, um, especially young people, about knowing God's will, you know what most of us are really asking. When we're, especially when we're younger, um, when we ask, how can I know God's will? What we're really asking is, what am I supposed to be when I grow up? Well, first of all, how do I know I'm even going to grow up? My brother died when he was 11. How do I know that I'm even going to get to retirement? How do I know that? How do I know where I'm going to be in 10 years? You, you heard me say this. Probably a hundred times. I, we've been in Columbia now for almost 13 years. I love it here. My family loves it here. Um, we, we've connected to God's people and God's purpose for us here. And, and we're excited about being here. But the truth is, I love living in Irmo. But 14 years ago, I didn't even know what an Irmo was. And if you'd asked me if I was ever going to live there, I would have thought you were talking about some foreign country somewhere as a missionary. We have no idea where we're going to be five years from now. That's why I can't worry about five years from now. How do I plug into God's plan for my life? By just living for God one day at a time. We're going to leave here today, and I'm going to go and do what I think God wants me to do this afternoon. Get my wife, drive to Jacksonville, and go on a cruise tomorrow. That, that, that in, in a funny sense... That's all we can do. God knows we're not perfect. God expects us to be perfect. And God loves us enough not 
to tell us what's going to happen next week or next month or next year. Because if he told most of us what was going to happen between now and then, we would be miserably worried to death over having to face it. It is God's mercy that we just live one day at a time. So, loneliness is a very real issue. Uh, we just kind of scraped the surface. But if you know people that are lonely, the three main things they need in their life is God, God's people, and God's plan. You plug into those. doesn't mean there won't be difficulty. It just means you don't have to face it alone, and life becomes livable. Father, thank you for giving us the Lord Jesus so we can know him personally. Thank you for giving us Christian friends to help us and love us and support us when we're going through difficult times. And thank you, Lord, that we know there's a purpose for our life. There's a reason why we're here. And it's a good reason. And it's a, a reason that will make us experience life in the way you intended for us to, with fullness of joy. Father, I ask that you'll guide and direct us this week. Uh, or give us each a great week. Watch over, protect us. You know what's coming, but we don't. So as we follow you and try to faithfully live for you one day at a time, I pray you'll use us. Let us be a blessing to some other people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody. Have a great week. I promise I will.